0: Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people, and today my guest is the author Tim Murphy. His books include his most recent Speech Team and Christadora, both of which I devoured over the holidays. He also has a book called Correspondence, which I haven't, but I plan to very soon because I love his writing. I saw that there was a book called Speech Team on Craig Chester, my friend and past podcast guest. He posted about it on Facebook. I'm like, Speech Team? I was on Speech Team in high school. I wonder if it's about a high school speech team. And the cover looked like kind of like the Breakfast Club poster. I'm like, this feels like it might be right in my alley. And it so was. It really spoke to me. And I reached out to Tim, and we made this interview happen. Um, I talk about my own Speech Team background. We talk about where the idea for the book came from. And I also listened to Chris DeDora after I read Speech Team, the audio. And I was just so moved by his writing and uh, so excited to talk to him. Also, he has a sub stack called the Kaftan Chronicles and this is the subtitle deep talks with notable gay men of a certain age about where we've been who we are today and where we're going so right up my alley um and I was really excited that this interview happened but before we get to the interview with Tim I wanted to give you an update about my dog Enzo um as I mentioned in the last podcast he had to have surgery um but he is recovering he came through it really well Um, I'm really glad I took him in when I did. They sent me a picture of all the stuff they removed from his stomach, and it was a lot. Um, What happened was an exterminator would come on Thursday. Um, That evening, both our dogs got sick, even though we stayed away the the recommended amount of time. Really sick. And then um, a few days later, Enzo still wasn't himself, so I took him in. They did an x-ray. They tried these different things, and there was all this stuff in his stomach. I think he had tried to self-soothe after the toxicity and ate like half of his own tail like it was gnarly it was like it looked like a fetus made of hair but they got it out and he's doing good so and luckily we were able to find um a non-profit place to do the surgery so it's still really expensive but it would have been three times more somewhere else um, so I, I, somebody has already donated to my virtual tip jar and put Enzo in the message. So if that appeals to you, that would be amazing. If you ever thought about donating to my virtual tip jar because you enjoy the podcast, um, that would be a cool thing. So you can learn about that at DennisAnyone.net. And I think that's enough for the plugs. And here now is the interview with Tim Murphy. And, yeah, I get a little emotional in this one, too. Joining me now from Queens, New York, it's Tim Murphy. He's the author of my new favorite novel, Speech Team. His other books include Correspondence and Christadora, which I went back and read after I read Speech Team. So the point is, I have a lot of questions. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Dennis. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I first saw mention of Speech Team on my friend Craig Chester's Facebook page. He's like, these are the books I'm reading, whatever. And I was like, Speech Team? I was on Speech Team in high school. I wonder if that's what that means. like. Because it was kind of a niche thing. It wasn't like, you know, the football team. And I was like, sure enough, and I downloaded the audio and listened to the audio. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I got to talk to this guy. I relate so much to this story. So, first of all, how would you describe Speech Team to someone that knows nothing about it, the novel?
1: Right, right. Well, it's about, Speech Team is about um, four friends who went to, you know, a middle-class Massachusetts high school in the 80s, as I did. Um, who uh, were all on speech team together, which I always, I often describe as it's like debate club plus, because it's many categories, not just debate. You know, you, you can write your own speech and deliver it. You can deliver a famous speech. You can read poetry. You can read children's literature. You can read in a duo, et cetera, many categories. And it was a really wonderful, geeky, subterranean world of high school it i kind of think of it as like the the poor stepchild of like the of the theater club you know <laughs> but um so anyway in the book they were all on speech team together in in high school and then 25 years later later basically via facebook they learn that like a fifth member of the team has killed himself and in the note in the goodbye note that he leaves on facebook he calls out the teacher who was there, Gary Gold, who was their speech coach for, you know, really devastating things that the coach said to him back in high school that he's never forgotten. So this slowly brings the four back into contact with one another. And they slowly share notes and they realize that this particular teacher slash coach who was really influential to them and a mentor in many ways, you know, said these really fucked up things to them. And you're not some of the some of the kids now in their 40s are more forthcoming than the others in terms of what he actually said but they decide to go by way of a sort of reunion trip go to Florida where he's in retirement and find him and confront him and basically say to him do you remember the things that you said to us because we do we've never forgotten them so that's sort of the setup for the the story
0: well it deals with how things that would happen in the 80s and before would never fly now. You could never get away with that stuff. There would be complaints. And in a way, we are so enlightened. But also, I think there was some freedom to the time we went to school that feels like it might be missing today, where maybe we got toughened up in a way that was good for us. So it's not all bad. It was like, I don't know. I, I, I feel like if you ask the characters in this book, this fucked up thing happened to you. It stayed with you all your life. Would you trade it and not be on speech team if you could do it again? And I think they would all say no. We'd we'd still do it because, oh, of, the other, because of the other, because the other stuff.
1: Loved they yes. loved it, transformative for them. I mean, they were all misfits in different ways. Like the yeah. four, two of them, the narrator, Tip Tip Murray, you know, who doesn't bear any resemblance Tremblance to the Tim Murphy, wow, author <laughs> of the book. I <laughs> no you know need. no, he and the other. Uh, He and Anthony were both gay and closeted in high school. And then also there was Jennifer who was like virtually the only black kid in the whole, you know, in the whole, in this very white suburban Massachusetts high school. And then there's Natalie Nat, who was kind of like a, you know, a kind of grungy little hippie, you know, in a preppy kind of atmosphere. So they, you know, they were all misfits in their own way and they all found refuge and they found a sense of sort of agency and, you know, excellence on speech team. Like, this is something I can do and I can do well and I can win for my team, you know?
0: Well, I want to compliment you as a writer because the things that he said to each one of them, you have to nail that as a writer. They have to be believable and a little bit quirky because those are the things that stick in your memory. Like he didn't just call the gay guy something. He, there were words that he used, adjectives, that stick. I remember there was this bully in my school. He wasn't even that big of a bully. Um, but he overheard me listening one time to him and he was older and I found him sexy. And I remember at the time he was talking about how he doesn't wear angels. Uh he wears Angel Flight slacks with no underwear, which is such a I was so turned on by it and I was kind of listening and he basically said stop listening to me or I'm going to break your scrawny little neck. Oh. And if he didn't say if he didn't say scrawny little It wouldn't have stuck as much. It's those words. So can you talk a little bit about how you thought about the things that he said to each person? Because they're important and they have to really sting, but they also have to be believable and a little offbeat,
1: right? Yeah, right. That's so interesting. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, the the whole book sprung from the fact that when I was in high school and I was on speech team... Um, a teacher, I'm not necessarily saying that it was the teacher who coached the speech team, but a teacher pulled me aside like one afternoon after school. You know, I was there for some club or whatever and was probably getting my books to finally go home at like four or five or something, you know, and this teacher was still there. And he saw me and he said, he said, Tim, come here. I want to talk to you. And he called me into his room. And I mean, it was it was nerve wracking because like there was no one else around, you know? Right. And he said to me, I mean, this is a direct lift. I mean, this is the seed for the book in a way. Like he said to me, like, what's your deal? I mean, this is my paraphrase. Cause I don't remember exactly what he said verbatim, but he said something like, I remember him starting by saying like, what's your deal? What's up with you? And I was like, w- what do you mean? And I'm just trying and- to be a kid in
0: high school. I'm just doing my best. Right.
1: Well, he said exactly what the, you know, the coach says in the book. He's like, you know, he said something like, why do you mince around this school like a flaunt, a, flaunt, a flouncing homosexual drag queen? Or like it was really a mouthful. Right. You know? But and it's the words
0: I, like mince and flouncy. Those yeah. are the things that stick.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because I don't even think I knew what mincing meant. Right. You have you to know? go
0: look it up. But apparently I'm doing yeah. it all over the place.
1: Right, right. Um, and uh, you know, I was a very like I said. Ask anyone who who knows me, my family or friends from then. I was very mouthy. I was like a. Re- I mean, I think one way that I defended myself against a lot of bullying was by being very mouthy. You know, like and you know, I felt like if you threw me in the mud, then I, if I called you a, I would call you a cretin or a Philistine, and, like, you wouldn't know what it meant, and that's how I got back at you. Right. Like, I was right. that gay. Right, you are a barbarian that... from this century right. or whatever, yeah. You troglodyte, trobli- you, trobli- <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> and while they're scratching your their heads, you're running for your life, like...
1: Right, or I'm sitting there in, like, a puddle of mud that they just threw me in, Right. you know, at the beginning of the school day. And that was a, sadly, you know, that was a sort of a, t- a not atypical day. But in this instance with the teacher, I... um. I was dumbstruck. You know, it was basically like someone saying, holding up a mirror and saying, this is what you look like. This is what everybody sees. And it's a problem as opposed to today. Like, you know, I see you and it's okay. You're beautiful. Just how you are. It was like, I see you and you have to change. And I just kind of walked out like really, you know, I just remember being like, "I I don't, I don't know what to say to you. And him just being like, well, it's just something you should think about. You know, you can go now.
0: right? you just dropped this bomb and said, okay,
1: next. Yeah. I mean, there was nothing along the lines of, like, do you need help? Do you want someone to talk to? No. It was an indictment, really. And um, and I just walked out in this daze, and I remember that I went down. I had a friend who I really admired her. She was two years older. So I was a sophomore, and she was a senior, and she was two years older. I mean, she was very smart. Um, she was one of those rare kids to like go to Harvard from my school, you know. Right. He was on the tennis court. She was at tennis practice, and I went down and I called her over and I and I told her, and because she she was on the team too, and she said, um, she's like, oh, he's such an asshole. Just don't listen to him, you know, which was supportive, but like so different from today, where someone would be like, we're reporting him like right. this is huge yeah. you know this is huge this was an instance of like teacher homophobia like and bullying on a student you know such were the 80s like you said we just kind of rolled with the punches you know and the best that you could do would be like to think oh you know fuck him he's an you know so the funny thing is it's like i didn't i don't really remember it you know i continued to do speech for like another 2 years and i don't really remember it shadowing, you know, feeling uncomfortable with him after that. And I think the reason why is because at that time, you know, such was my internal homophobia that I think I, you know, I agreed with him. Yeah. You know, I, uh, something The was idea wrong.
0: that it could be okay was nowhere in the culture.
1: No, exactly, Exactly. Exactly. You wouldn't even think to like push back. Right. You know, yeah. Now, of course, you know, in cities and like New York and San Francisco, like, you know, act, you know, we're nearly act up as, you know, but the a few, a handful of cities where AIDS was raging and activism was really starting to rage was not the same as the rest of the country at that point. For you know? sure.
0: Um, the idea that this person saw the kids for who they were really resonated with me. And I think of my speech teacher, Mrs. Smithson, and the most influential teacher of my early career for high school and college, for sure. And never said any fucked up stuff to us. In fact, she said the thing that I think when people say, what's the best advice you ever got? I might get emotional talk about this. Um, she was, we were, it was a small school and she was also the cheerleading coach. So- where you grow up? Holbrook, Arizona. Yeah. Okay. We were, we did pretty good in the regional speech things, but when we went to state, it was, you know, we were out of our leagues. But anyway, um- <laughs> Yeah, She was also the cheerleading captain, and I was at the Letterman's Banquet because I was also on the golf team, and I lettered in golf. So there I was at the Letterman's Banquet with all these athletes, and and Mrs. Smith, luckily, is also the speech teacher and the cheerleading coach, so she was there. And I said, I've never felt so out of place in my whole life. And she said, never feel ashamed because you don't fit in with the crowd. She goes, you're not a stereotype, and someday you'll
1: appreciate how special that is. Hmm. Wow. Hmm, those, those moments are really just amazing, aren't they?
0: Yeah, but it's the opposite of what happens to some of the characters in your book. Although Mr. Gold is also, he does see them. He does, but he does this yeah. fucked up stuff. And um, I reached out to one of my friends who was on speech team with me. And I said, I'm doing this interview about speech team, about this book, and do you have any th- what do you think? What do you think about it? What does it mean to you? What are your memories? And this is what my friend Holly wrote. Give me one second.
1: Shit. Mm. I cut this part out. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. I love it. It's, it's, it's moving to me that I'm glad the book provoked this.
0: You know what I've noticed? I, I get emotional a lot on these podcasts in the last year. But they when I listen back, it doesn't sound as bad as it would. It's not as cringy as when you're looking at it or as it feels. When I listen back, I'm like, oh, that's not so bad. <laughs>
1: but well, it's, not it's not cringy to me. It's really moving. Actually. Right. I'm a journalist. You know, I interview people. They cry all the time. And sometimes yeah. I cry with them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's, the th- here's, what, here's what she wrote. I felt like speech team gave me a place to fit in and to shine. I'm not athletic. So sports were not an option. Speech was somewhere that we all were welcome. And we were so lucky to have Sarah Smithson. She was a perfect teacher for that job. As I've aged, I appreciate even more. All the time she put into us. It's really amazing that she was
1: willing to give up her free time to help us. <laughs> mm. Well, it's funny because the teacher in the book, I mean, I hope that's, I hope that there's complexity in the book coming out of the fact that he was, as I've said in shorthand, their, men, their mentor and their tour mentor. Yeah. Same it's, time. it's brilliant. And also,
0: you know what, I was thinking back to high school. i I grew up in a small town, so you could do a lot of things. I was on the golf team. Um, I was on swing choir and I, and I was on student cancel and I was in speech team. Speech team was where I was the most myself. And that yeah. teacher saw who I was going to be mm-hmm. differently than any of the other aspects. You know, The choir teacher was really religious and so I, he sort of saw me as a good boy or whatever it was. This teacher saw me for who I was. And Mr. Gold sees those kids for who they were. He does. Mm-hmm. But he thinks there's a problem with who they were. And he points it out.
1: Mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm.
0: that's the problem
1: well i think also i mean it he reflects the time you yeah. know where certainly if you were a parent you know the first reason why you would be dismayed to hear that your child was gay was because you didn't want them to have a hard life yeah yeah and, and a hard life with a death in the mix at the time right too you know i mean what did What was the most common, you know, by about 1985, what was the most common association with being gay? It was AIDS. Yeah, That was the departure point for the novel. And then in terms of what is eventually revealed that he says, you know, to the others or that he, well, I don't want to spoil. I mean, there's a little bit.
0: Everybody has a story about Mr. Gold.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was invented. And, you know, to your point, I had to sort of think about what, would feel um you know rather than just sort of a generic racist comment or something like that like what would what would he what would what would he have said you know like as a character as a person and so I wanted each one to be a bit odd you well, know? you
0: nailed that and I think it's important because it, it the all of the characters hinge on that thing that he said they haven't been able to let it go. So I thought your the, the choices of words and the anecdotes and how they came up and how they emerged, I thought that was yeah. really well done on your behalf. I mean,
1: I struggled a lot with like the, you know, I say this is a novel about like small T trauma because even as I was writing it, I you know, I, th- I was aware that I was sort of dialing up maybe. Well, it's funny, actually. I worried that readers would say, oh it's preposterous that they still are hurt over this so many years later but and you know and some readers have said that they were like oh when i finally learned what he said i didn't really think it merited how much it impacted them but so many other readers have said just like what you shared you know they 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 vividly remember something really loving and 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 nurturing or something really devastating and hurtful that was said to them by like a parent or a teacher when they were a a child or a teen. So I kind of feel like there's, you know, what I hit on, there's truth in that because it's like many people can point to a moment like that in their lives.
0: Right. And we all have small T trauma. We don't maybe we don't all have big T trauma where we survived a tsunami or horrible abuse or whatever. But I think we all relate to those little things that stick. Maybe we shouldn't let them stick, but they do. And they're there underneath, you know? There's a line that you wrote about when Mr. Gold tells Tip, don't be so flouncy mincy. Uh, If it's not okay with Mr. Gold, then it really isn't okay. Because he was Mm -hmm. the one that got them. Like, he was the nerd haven. And if he didn't get them, then it really wasn't okay. Let's talk fun stuff about speech. Okay, I did humor and drama. What was your thing?
1: I did several. I mean, I think the first one I did was Children's Lit. Interesting. We didn't really have that. I did this – oh, my God. I did Rumpelstiltskin. And my brother to this day still, you know, mocks, does his imitation of me doing it with my, like, really, really bad Cockney accent, you know. Well – And my and my Boston accent, you know, that I still had at the time, as I talk about in the book. But after I did Children's Lit, I did – I did – oh, I did – um well, I won't bother with the cat I did the I did the category where you read someone else's speech. I did I wrote my own speech at least once. I did original oratory Yeah, where, oratory
0: like, wrote, was like not that many people that
1: wasn't the fun one. <clears throat> yeah. I did um what was your oratory about? Do you remember? My oratory was about it was about how the oh, I'm so crazy thinking back on it. It was about how kind of like the spirit, you know, the mid eighties it's all about materialism and greed and everything, right? Right. So I did it – I did my orator and how like the spirit of the hippies of like 20 years ago was coming back through like Bob Geldof and like USA for Africa or some some bullshit, you know, some very 14-year-old analysis.
0: Right. Well, oratories, what I remember about them, I was never drawn to that. Uh, But there was always like somebody's story, like they would do anorexia nervosa or something, and the end would be, and that girl was me. And yeah. They would always get first out of six, first out of six, first out of six. They would always tell their own personal story and then drop the bomb at the end. And it was like you can't pit you can't compete with that, you know. Right? Yeah, that was what I remember at Oratory. But when you did drama, that was like uh, a cutting. We used the word cutting. Did you guys say cutting? We did a you mean cutting. Like an What's a, yeah? I like can excerpt. Yeah, like I'm going to do yeah, a cutting from we... Neil Simon's California Suite. Was that a thing?
1: Yeah. Well, I remember we did a cutting from the. <laughs> The, the climactic courtroom scene of The Crucible. Right. And we did The Crucible
0: a as a one act. And what I remember is the flat falling on the girl that played Abigail. Literally oh, falling. No. Bam. Knocking around. <laughs> like, wow. I think that was God's way of saying, maybe we weren't cut out for that material. But yeah, the, uh, the Crucible was a big one. But when you would do drama, you would do an excerpt from a play and you would play all the characters. So you would turn one way and use right, one exactly. voice. Right. And I would angle. do... I did California Suite, I think. And then Saturday Night Live published a book of sketches. Like uh, it was kind of a scrapbook, but there were scripts. And if something were published, you could do it. And so I did like the Coneheads. I kind of yeah. did well with that for a while. But my, I think my my biggest triumph, and I'm on to hear yours, there was a um, – I did a cutting. I think it was a play. A cutting. I did, for drama, I did Night Must Fall by Emlyn Williams, which is mm-hmm. the character's like a, a crazy person and maybe a murderer, I think, is what I remember. But here's what I remember. I don't remember the name of the character, but you always had to do an intro, right? You had an intro and then you would set up your thing. And I would say, like, i say the guy's name is Morgan Smith. In Night Must Fall, Morgan Smith is insane. And I would kind of do it like a crazy person. And I was like, that always killed. And I still remember to this day, like, that was a solid choice. Insane. Like, I get a little crazy in my eye and I feel like it served me. And then you would kind of bow it at the end, right? Like, I just, and yet, the grownups thought these were all good things for us to do and learn. And I guess they were. But looking back, do you need to see one guy doing the cone heads in a room? Like, I don't know. Like, what do you remember about your um your your triumphs? Like what was your killer uh peak speech tame
1: moments? I mean, I think the part I remember most was like my by a senior year I did poetry and Interesting. you know and the, the book tip does Walt Whitman. Right. With a lot of gay subtext and kind of like a strange, unspoken something going on between him and the, the coach as he reads it. Um and I didn't do Whitman, but I did I do remember that I did um I got really into this idea of like I thought how cool that you can curate, you know, you can read a bunch of poetry and like make choices, pick out a few things because they go together and they they speak. So I did like this curated selection of beat poetry, like nice. Greg Porso and like, you know, Lawrence Verlinghetti. and I think I ended with maybe like an Alan Gins, I forget. But then I did, it was winter, and I did a series of Robert Frost winter poems. And I thought that was very classy, you know, that they were all, like, winter poems. And, of course, I ended with stopping by woods on a a snowy evening. Solid choice. I, I just liked that the best, in a way, because I think the reading of poetry is the most artistic. You know, the other categories, they trended a little bit political or, like, academic. Like, you know, make a solid argument. And something about reading poetry is just sheerly about how you read to convey the the world and the the tone and the mood of the poem, you right. know. And I I love that. I love. I really love that. Something about bringing poetry to life vocally and thinking about how to do it, like you know, it definitely unlocked. You know, it, and you know, poetry is also very kind of like unlocks unspoken feelings, you know. And I sort of remember that feeling now feeling like kind of like it, I was sort of wading into this other world of like un, of feelings that I couldn't dare speak aloud or, or something, you know?
0: Well, something else that this makes me think of is it opened us up to looking at material for ourselves and like thinking about like, like, Oh, this is smart. I'm going to do this or discovering something yourself and saying, Hey, Mr. Gold, can I do this? What do you think of that? And like, I think that was kind of a sophisticated thing for me in my town at that time uh you know thinking about like oh that would make a good cutting for for speech or whatever you do you didn't lean into the fun categories like humor and uh uh did you ever do duo acting we had that once in a while where you would do a scene and there were two people
1: I, ever, no, yeah. I don't think i ever i don't think i ever duo, and i don't think i ever did humor it was called h i humorous interpretation yeah.
0: yeah 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 did you happen to see the michael yuri documentary about speech and drama teams it was probably from eight or nine years ago uh he made it and it's i can't remember what it's called oh it's called thank you for judging because i guess at the end of every um every after you finish your speech and you leave the room you say to the uh judge thank you for judging i guess that was like that wasn't our thing we didn't say that but i guess it became like a catchphrase but it was really interesting and of course brought back all those memories but i think also part of the reason he made it was to show how fucking great he was at speech in high school he was so good he was yeah. crushing it. I was like, "Oh my god, this guy!" That
1: doesn't surprise me. He's really talented. He's
0: super talented, and he was back then. And I was like, "Oh man!" When I think of like what I was doing in my little town, and then like compared to that. But anyway, did you yeah. have crushes on the boys from the other teams from the other schools? Because I did hmm. more so than I did in, with kids in my own school.
1: In the book, in the book, he has he has a crush. He has a friend from another school that he um that kind of uh rescues him you know like he has having a very lonely moment at like one of the dances that sometimes there would be these little impromptu dances to like blow off steam after yeah so that character that character is actually was based on some an older guy who was gay who i knew in high school in another context but um that's a really good question. I mean, well, yeah, I do remember there was this... I mean, he's gone on... He be, went on to become a very important person in, like, the Obama administration. Sexy. Um, I didn't have a crush on him. I was... I remember that I was... Re- we would compete against, like, these very, you know, uh, like, these private schools. Right. You know, Rich where I'm from, yeah. the Boston area, there's a lot of, you know, these top-flight private schools. Like, there's a lot in that area. So... We Like, you know, as I talk about in the book, speech team tournaments were a day when you would have much more proximity to, like, students much richer and much poorer than you. I mean, it was one of the only times I ever saw, like, students of, like, Black or Hispanic students. They were the Boston students. You know, they were the students. for They went to, like, Boston Latin, uh, which is, like, the honor school. Right. You know? Um, but also a lot of these private school kids. And this... Guy was just so – I didn't have a crush on him so much as, like, he was just so polished and so assured. I think I have this vibe of, like, oh, this is the kind of person that, like, becomes president or something like that. Right, you're a little enamored. But I I also remember that there was this black girl from Boston Latin who was just – she was so polished. She was so elegant. I was sort of in love with her, like, in a non-sexual way just because – she just was so sophisticated and polished in her delivery, you know?
0: Well, what it was, was it was the misfits of every school coming together to be themselves. Like, it was kind of like, yeah. that. that's, I think, a magical It was a, it was
1: a thing. nerd fest. It, it was, was a, a nerd, nerd
0: fest. A certain kind of nerd fest. Really um, let your
1: nerd flag fly.
0: One of the things I appreciated about your book, and I've written a couple of novels that aren't de- dealing with as heavy of things like this, but I, I tend to write myself or whatever. I like that the gay guy's kind of the biggest mess. I like that he was really complicated and that part of what we're following is him sort of growing up a bit. Can you talk a little bit about why that was important to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, for one thing, I mean, he's, they're all in their early forties in the book, right? Right. So in some ways I was, I mean, I'm not to say that I'm like perfected and like, you know, uh, perfected, whatever, not still a work in progress now at 54, but I was drawing a little bit on how I felt around turning 40, which was maybe, uh, still much more to work out than I thought, you know, that kind of came to like bite me on the ass. Um, I think by 40, I thought that I was over the messiness of like when I was around 30, but there were, there were things that were unaddressed and I did, I got a little messy again, like with drugs Right around when I turned 40 and that was a real turning point, you know, a, a bit like, well, I don't want to spoil, but, you know, when I was like, okay, Tim, you're 40 now, you know, it's one thing to like be it's not so cute anymore. 30, like you really have to. And that was a real turning point in my life because I think for the first time I asked the question, like, what do I really want from my life, you know, as opposed to like what I think I should and should not be doing, like I should not be a mess. Like, I'm like, what, you know, it's like, what do you really want? You know, what do you want the rest of your life to be like? So the change followed from like a positive thing rather than a feeling like my inner voice scolding me and telling me to get it together. But, um, but the other thing, it's funny what you said about him being a mess, because I think that I sort of have this theory that. um, Not all women, but a lot of women like gay men. To the point that they see them as, like, a clever elf, you know, that helps them pick out their clothes. They don't have their own problems. Yeah, and they don't really want to see a darker, more broken part of us. And what's been really interesting about this book is how it, uh, you know, I mean, I read Goodreads. What can I say, right? Right. But I know how many women find, I mean, Tip is whiny, you know? But I note how many women find him just whiny and annoying and how many gay men are the ones. It's gay men who are saying, like, this book hit a deep chord. Right.
0: I think you're looking at it because I'm I'm my age. I'm I'm in my late 50s. I look at it and I'm like, oh, he's caring about the wrong stuff. Like, he's invested in the wrong – like, you you could see yourself in it, how you used to be a little bit. And and you want him to – you want him to – um i guess mature a bit i think that's one of the themes of it and he does and, and he's sort of a, a light comes on for him uh, near the end and i found that very um real and relatable and i don't think it's something that i would have written because i think i'm more like i'm going to be in the middle and make everything else okay like you know what i mean like i don't know i i just admired it i admired i felt like i felt kind of raw and honest and um not something that I've seen a lot of. So congrats on, on doing that.
1: I mean, it's funny. I didn't really enjoy, this is the most, I mean, I think maybe since my first novel that I wrote in my twenties, um, this is the most, you know, in recent, in my adult life or whatever, this is like the most kind of personal autobiographical novel. And I don't really, um, it's hard to explain. Um, I don't feel quite the pride in the accomplishment of this novel that I do with the last two, which are not only bigger, but I think they go so much more deeply into characters other than one based so obviously on me Mm -hmm. and require a lot more kind of empathy and imagination. Like I just had to work harder. And the one, the novel I've since finished that hopefully will be published was in many ways a return to novel where a lot of the focus was on other yeah. character. Um, I don't really want to write like a blatantly autobiographical novel like this again.
0: But this needed to come out, don't you think? Like it yeah, something, yeah. so. Yeah.
1: I guess so, yeah. I mean, I think for the first time I was sort of like, well, I'm going to write a novel about what, you know, it was a white middle-class childhood, not that, again, it's not capital T trauma, right. but I'm going to write a novel about what, adolescence was like for me and how I think it formed or misformed, you know, misshaped like who I became as an adult.
0: Right. But it's also very of the moment in talking about messages that we give to children, what teachers say, what they do, which has sort of come under the microscope more in the last 10 years. And in your acknowledgments, you sort of acknowledge that things aren't like this anymore as much and thank you to the people that have moved us in that direction. And so it, it, it felt like, yes, maybe an autobiographical story that you wanted to tell, but it felt of the moment in terms of reckoning with things that used to fly and don't fly anymore.
1: Um, yeah. What's so interesting is that when I was writing it in – when was I writing this? In 2020, I think during COVID year one. But, um, you know, this all this horrible wave of, like, anti-LGBT – you know, in schools, books banning books, drag shows, you know, especially trans kids, you know, banning hadn't happened yet. Um, and it's interesting that I would say the difference between then and now is that like uh homophobia or never even mind transphobia because no one even knew what the hell right. that war- right. was at the time. Um but homophobia then was more casual, I think in the sense that um You know, the idea of being, of a lot of people out in the world being openly gay was an abstraction. Like, it didn't really exist. So when you were mocking it or being homophobic, you were almost being homophobic about an abstraction, right? You know, whereas today, you know, there, a lot of progress has been made. You know, there's a lot of, and, you know, the queer community and their allies have a lot of clout, you know, and have managed to change policies and change laws So the homophobia today is more like a backlash to progress, you know, whereas then it was kind of like, well, what racism was like before the civil rights movement, you know, it was cruel, but it wasn't focused on trying to obliterate or set back something that was finally starting to like move forward, you know?
0: Right. Um, I was wondering if you would read a passage because I love, your writing is very... It's not uh, overly florid or anything. It just lands. And it's like, oh, that's the perfect adjective. I just love the way you write is my point. And also this oh. gets a little bit at what we're talking about is that Tip has some – Tip's pissed off. Like I thought of when I – after I read this passage, I was like, oh, that's some Velvet Rage shit right there. And, oh, my God.
1: I was just going to mention the Velvet Rage. Right?
0: Yeah. And and um, so this is from uh, about page 21. Tip is trying to f- sort out why he wants to go confront this man with his old classmates
1: want me to read this part yeah i would love it i'm trying to find okay so and then i thought of gold in happy golf club retirement these past many years he likely never spent a day thinking about what he'd said to us he likely didn't remember at all how profoundly unfair that the three of us the recipients should live on with those remarks but not him their author i could destroy him anthony had said did i want to destroy gold is that what i was out for And then I leveled with myself. Gold was the least of it. I wanted to destroy all of them. For every faggot spat in my direction, every slap upside the head, every trip up in the hallway, every load of books and notebooks pushed out from under my arm, every classroom crack about sucking dick or taking it up the butt that teachers had only clucked over but never really put a stop to, every terrified sprint home from school only to round the bend and be cornered every snowdrift or mud slick I was made acquainted with, every dreaded stomach-in-knot Sunday night or last day of summer for nearly a decade. Then, once it was ostensibly all over, being left with that churning pit of fear, panic, and rage, underneath a thin veneer of adult self-possession, then falling apart. I couldn't find all those boys. Most of them, I didn't even remember their names. They were a blur of harsh mass accents, flannel shirts that smelled like cigarettes and pot, Mullet haircuts and work boots, Iron Maiden and Judas Priest blaring out of their car radios, ragged laughter that faded as they drove off, me still on the ground, playing dead, until I knew they were gone. I couldn't find them all, but I could find gold. Certainly not to destroy him, that was going too far. But I realized that I'd like to at least watch his eyes glass over, as ours had, to perhaps see one tear well and drop as it dawned on him that his words had stayed with us for life. And I wouldn't leave until I heard the words I wanted to hear. I am so sorry. And even then, I resolved I might not fully forgive. That was my, our prerogative, and we could lord it over him as long as we chose, casting the same shadow over his golden year's sunshine state idol that he'd cast over our tenderest years."
0: the best oh god you're such a good writer yeah. but also i was i listened to the audiobook and i was i remember listening to that part and i'm like holy shit like y- like there's some velvet rage stuff here and i i got like i talked about the scrawny neck thing i did not get bullied that bad by all i grew up in a small town you know if you had one bad day with somebody it blew over and so it sounds like did you have experiences that were that were, that were like what you just wrote yeah. about yeah it was all damn
1: Really awful. I mean, I didn't even really come to, um, identify it as really like damaging trauma until, you know, well into my adulthood. Um, but, you know, but I should also say, you know, um, that it was complicated because that part of my life coexisted with popularity and success you know, I'm sure you know, like, in a small town, you know, a lot of times, like, the gay boy is the star. Right. In a lot of ways, artistically or liter- in terms of literary. And I was all those things and was respected and got, like, affirmation for those things. And I was also a brat, you know? Like, I was a really mouthy. Right. I had a really toxic mouth. So, you know, it was it, it was a confusing period of both, like, kind of affirmation and humiliation, you know, for me. And I think that really just uh, you can come out of that feeling very entitled and like a victim at the same time. And they're both true. Right. You know? Well, when
0: I read that, when I heard that passage, I, it kind of took me aback. Did it feel like a big thing when you were writing it? Did it feel cathartic or, or was it just like another part of the book?
1: It felt cathartic, but it also felt, I mean, I think I grappled with the very thing I was telling you about how, like, the book exists on this line between, like, real, you know, hardcore trauma and a more smaller trauma. Right. And I I worried that, I think I worried that it would, well, I guess I just decided to put it on the line, you know, yeah. and I, some people might think this is really whiny and petty but this is the experience that I had. And I know this is the experience that so many other gay kids, especially boys, I think, had at that time. Like, just brutal. You and know, that's just, where
0: Tip is in this story. That's where he is. Like, he can really tap into that stuff. And it and it motivates him a lot. Um, the character of Anthony is another gay character who's become a very successful designer. And he's rich and glamorous. And what I liked about him is that the successful famous person wasn't an asshole. Like, he wasn't defined by his success? Because I think a lot of times in books, it's like, oh, they did so much better than us and they're too good for us. He was richer than that. He wasn't that he wasn't that person that went off and got successful.
1: Talk right. a little about Anthony. Well, Anthony was so fun to write. You know, I would say that if I took my own self and like split it into two characters, it would be Tip and Anthony. Like Tip is the mess who's always getting in his own way and sabotaging himself. And Anthony is... Um, maybe he's aspirational for me. Or I should say Anthony is the very, like, the disciplined side of myself that has stuck with writing, like, all these years, you know, out of some base belief that, you know, something would come out of it, right? Wow. So he was, he was so fun to write because, like, he's such a stereotype of a certain kind of a-gay that has a perfect-looking life, you know, that has a trainer. You know, he's that...
0: He knows exactly kind of, what clothes look good on his body and
1: like the shoes. Well he's completely transformed himself. Yeah. yeah. You know, like even he even talks in like a deeper voice than he did when he was, you know, in high school. So he was so fun to write because the, for it for him was all about how soon, you know, it's will will that facade come down? And, you know, will you see the, the core or or how soon will it happen? Yeah, you know? and so what's that behind scene, that facade? Scene where and, that scene where he and Tip reunite, yeah. you know, first time in many, many years was a really fun scene to write.
0: Yeah. I also appreciate Natalie. She's in a place where her ship hasn't really come in in terms of, like, money and, and setup. And I think a lot of people relate to that. Like, you're looking at your old friends and they've got the you know, the nice house and the careers and whatever. And you're still like trying to find yourself. I think uh, I related to her as well.
1: There's sort of like four levels of material success, right? Like you have Anne with this very glittering Manhattan life. You have Jennifer who has a comfortable, prestigious professorial life. You know, she lives in a a nice liberal suburb in Jersey. You have Tip who I guess is kind of like, um, you know, sort of trudging along, very middle class, you know, with a deep sense of, um, you know, that life owed him more than this. Right. And then, and then you have Natalie, who's really struggling, literally, to like make ends meet.
0: And I relate it to all of them. Jennifer is the African-American character. And at one point you talk about Tip saying, it never occurred to me to think about what it would have been like for her to be like one of the only black kids in that school. Like he never had that thought. I grew up in Northern Arizona. So there were uh, a lot of native americans in our school like that lived in a dormitory from the reservation and 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 we got along fine and all of that but it never occurred to me to think about what their experience was like or to think about them to put myself in their shoes at all i wasn't mean to them i didn't judge them or anything like that they were there but it never occurred to me to think about what must that have been like for them and so I, I related to your book in that way as well.
1: I had the same experience, too. I mean, I, you know, there were very few, like, kids of color in my school. And there were also very few Jewish kids. I mean, they were really just a handful. And another thing that sparked the book was that right before I started writing the book, I ended up having coffee with this friend from high school who I had literally not seen her since we graduated. But she, she lives, you know, she moved back to New York. She had moved to our town from New York City. She was way too cool for our town. You know, he dressed how Madonna dressed in 83, 84, you know, lots of, you know, that kind of cool, punky ragamuffin look. And um, she was also Jewish. And it never, um, so when I met up with her, she said, oh, you wouldn't believe how many, how many, uh, anti-Semitic, you know, uh, things were said to me when I moved there. And she said, I was shocked because I was coming from like this very Jewish place where it just just wasn't a big deal. And she's like, I was just really shocked to be singled out that way, you know, that that was actually a source to mock, to insult people. And, you know, that, just like what you said, I was like, oh, honey, I had, that's so hard to hear. I had no idea. It's like, you kind of think that, you're the only recipient of bullying, you know, right. for whatever it is that you are. And um. so I thought about, just like you said, I never really thought, like, you know, I never really thought about what it was like for other people.
0: Yeah, I look back and I'm glad that I wasn't a dick, but I really never thought about what that must have been like. I could yeah, I, I, I really probably could have been it, nicer.
1: I relate to what you're saying, too, because it's like I held no... Okay, like I'm thinking of one of my best friends. I mean, she was one of the few Asian kids in the school. I never thought twice about that, but I also never thought about what that was like for her. Right. And probably hearing, I won't do them, but, you know, the way you can put your hands up to your eyes. Sure, all that stuff. All that stuff, you know. I mean, she probably casually heard that stuff and just stuff like that. You just really don't think, as he says in the novel, he's like, you know, kids are stupid. Like, teenagers are stupid. Like... We think we're so smart, but so much is going right over our heads and we don't realize it until years later.
0: Yeah. Something that I thought about reading your book is my high school years, I didn't have a teacher like Mr. Gold, but after college, I came out to Los Angeles and I took part in this 12-week intensive musical theater workshop. I think it was called the American Academy of Musical Theater. It was sort of prestigious. It was at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. You went five nights a week and they would have like audition night and you would audition and they, they would be brutal and be like, whatever and there was the guy that ran it his name's Paul Gleason and there were 12 people in this uh, cohort or no 24 maybe 12 guys and 12 girls so it was an intense group you got to know each other a lot but it was during that time the Debbie Allen you want fame well fame costs that, where they thought they were toughening you up for the business right mm, yeah. so there was a lot of cruelty there was yeah. a lot of comments that stuck there was some really fucked up behavior, not to me, but to my my friends. And a couple of years ago, a bunch of us got together and had a meal and sat around. And, and we were talking about what this time meant to us. Some people left the business. I, it was so traumatic, I left show business. I didn't want to be a performer anymore. Um, mm. Other people were like, I'm going to show him or whatever. And I recorded part of it on my phone because I might use it on a podcast, maybe a supplemental episode to this. But that's what I thought. That's, that was my Mr. Gold. But I got, a, I got off pretty easy other people got more, got worse and hearing their stories and sensing it at the time. I just think that this idea that they're going to toughen you up and be cruel because that's what it takes. And you have to suffer for your art. Like, I don't think that's cute anymore. Um, right. Thoughts. Did you get this in the world of writing? Was there people that thought if they were harder on you, they would, that you would do better. They were preparing you for the cold, hard world.
1: I mean, I, I <laughs> I mean, I do remember the very first paper I turned it in, in college, you know, I think I had been really uh, rewarded in high school for writing in this really flowery style that was much more like style than substance or like just a good, strong, well-argued argument. Right. And this this professor just eviscerated it. You know, he was like, a bunch of like flashy phrases does not a thesis make. You know, he's like, you need to learn you need to learn how to like identify a thesis, a main idea, and like follow it all the way through. And he gave me like a C. Plus. And but you know, but the thing is, I even I've even told that story to my own students because I've taught fiction a little bit in recent years. You know, I mean, I'm glad he did. It was a cold slap in the face, but I'm glad. And, you know, to your point, I think that it's tricky. I think everyone these days who's in some position of authority or instruction is trying to walk a line between how do I be honest in a constructive way, but not say those things that you pointed out that are so devastating and might, and might really well just like push someone away from the field forever. Right. And also I should say that our, you know, um, there's a lot of bias, you know, there's a lot of like implicit bias behind those statements. I mean, look at who you're saying them to. Like if you say something like that to like, oh, you know, you have a long way to go if you want to be a classical actor and you're saying that to like the only black girl in the acting class or something, like there's a lot of bias behind that, right. you know? right? Or the perception of bias. So I just think we think about, that was such a, I mean, I think what I missed about that time was the DIY, like the way that people were supposed to be in the world and you know, uh, exactly the right language that it was, but you know, that didn't, it wasn't as codified as it is now. And there was a certain, the stakes were lower maybe. And yeah. and I actually think that in some ways, the not over identification with identity of that period, like, um, in some ways was good because maybe teachers or whatever, just, they looked past your identity, like the fact that you were gay or your race or something like that, and they they just saw you, you know? I mean, it was a less identity politics-driven time, which I think it's inevitable in some ways that we, you know, we needed to become more conscious about for sure. all these privilege and stuff. But I don't know. I have a weird... I mean, even for all the abuse I took, like, I have a weird nostalgia for that time. What I really miss about that time was if you wanted different things from the mainstream back then, whether it was in music or magazines or literature or film, like you had to go out and find it. You know what I mean? We crawled around Boston and Cambridge looking for the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just all there at your fingertips. Like you really had to work for it. And then when you were in it, it felt really special. Like you really felt like you were, and the same thing for being gay. Like you felt like you were part of a secret world.
0: Right. My parents had no investment if I did speech and drama. They didn't care if I found a cool cutting from California Suite that made me laugh because I got to be Maggie Smith. Like, th- it, it, <laughs> there wasn't any of that pressure. It was mine. It was mine. Right? Yeah, right and right. And find, and it, I think I built up my confidence.
1: Um, well, and I think to your point, like, the, the latchkey vibe of that period. For where, sure. You know, we're left alone to just, like, occupy ourselves and – Yeah, on one hand, you could say it was more dangerous and uh, we were so unsupervised, et cetera. But it was wonderful, too. I mean, you were really left to kind of form, to grope around, to grasp around and stumble around and form your own identity. And you didn't have necessarily parents or other. They were um, fussing over you and worrying about, like, you know, if your every step was going to be a developmental setback. Yeah. You know?
0: There's a woman in Mr. Gold's life now, a new wife. And when I realized that she was there, I was comforted. Like, she's going to help. Like, I don't know what it is about women. I don't know. I just was like, oh, she's going to be important.
1: I loved writing her. I loved her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's just sort of a sweetheart, isn't she? And it kind of makes you revise. I mean, she... Well, I don't want to spoil too much, but, like, she... You know, the thing is, it's like when you're a kid or you're a teenager, like a teacher is just, it's just an authority figure. You don't really think about them being a human being with a life and disappointments and insecurities and their own baggage, you know, their own childhood, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You don't think a lot about why they are the way they are. And she, she sort of unveils him to them as... A full person, as a full person, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, she's. I think people like that in the world make the world keep it. I think they keep it glued together. Is her name Janet? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Janet.
0: Janet keeps the world glued together. So after I listened to Speech Team, I went back and read Christadora. and I had bought it when it came out, but I hadn't read it yet. And you know why I bought it? I think Andy Cohen posted about it. Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, he did. Yeah, I saw been, uh, that
0: and I bought it and then I just never got to it. You know, books pile up. And so I went back and listened to it. Like you mentioned earlier, it's much more epic in scope. It's, it's over decades and it moves back and forth in time and there's all these rich characters and they interact. My question is when you're writing a book like that, that moves back and forth in time and you're going to tell this story from this year about these people – how do you organize it in your head? Is it instinctual? Is there an app? Are there post-its all over your uh-huh. wall? How do you uh-huh. think about the sequencing of, I'm going to unveil this at this point in the book?
1: How do you do it? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I guess I should just say to set it up, like that book is so much about how um, like the AIDS epidemic in New York kind of impacts this family and this group of people over many decades, you know, right? well past well past when the epidemic is, is really raging, you know, like well into the era of like good treatment. Um, and it starts like right around Y2K, I mean, right around nine eleven, And then it goes back and forth, like on either side of that date, you know, between 1981. And I think the fine, it's so funny to think that it's when I wrote it, I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm envisioning 2021. It was like right. 20. Right. with now, No
0: COVID. Yeah.
1: Uh which was yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know, I know. Many people Yeah, are, you didn't yeah, get that people. right. <laughs> no, I, I did not. You're absolutely right.
0: But the scope well, of it, the ambition of it, did you know when you started how big it was gonna be?
1: Oh no, this is the thing. That was the first novel that I attempted to write in a long time, like in a decade. And I didn't and I really, really wanted to write again, and I did not have like a built-out idea for like a whole novel from beginning to end. So I just decided to write this short story, you know, about this group of people where, you know, the kind of worst, the worst, the absolute, I mean, the absolute worst days of AIDS at, at that point in this first story that I wrote have passed, right? They're like, they're about a decade ago. And so the story was sort of about let's start with this group of people and see where they are now. And so I wrote it and it really just came from like, uh, I think I knew what I wanted to write about, but I just didn't have the story structure. Right. So I wrote the first chapter, which is very close to the first chapter that exists in the book, with some changes. And then I think my idea was like, I'll write a collection of linked short stories where every um, every story, you know, in the second story at the end of the story, you learn how it links back to the first one. And then, and so on and so on. Right. That's how it started. That's how it started. And then in terms of how it all ties together, that, I didn't have it at the very beginning, you know, like it sort of, it came to me over time and that was the best. I mean, that's when writing really feels magical as though you feel like, you know, the heavens are like sending right. you the, something, you know?
0: Yeah. I've had moments like that in my own writing. Not a lot. But it's sort of like – it just feels like grace. I call it grace. Like this feels – that's the word I use. And you don't – You. I think you kind of pound away for a while, and then every once in a while you get those moments. Um, to me, the novel Christadora, it's set – the building is the Christadora. Is that a real building?
1: It is, it, it yeah. It is.
0: Did you have any connection to it or you just liked it?
1: Well, I lived in the East Village at the time. right. I started the book. I sort of envisioned it taking place in this apartment building in the neighborhood very similar that I have a good friend live in. Um, but I don't know if you if you've ever seen it, but like the Chris there's a park, you know, there's a very I iconic, Okay, there's a very iconic park in the East Village called Tompkins Square Park that's been the site of a lot of activism and community strife and all this over the years. And the only tall building. This is kind of a low, still kind of like a low-lying neighborhood. The only tall building that like looms over the park is the Cristodora, which is, I think it's like a 14-story building and it was built in like 1929. And it has a very uh kind of iconic history that kind of mirrors the history of the city, like, you know, going all the way down to the dumps in the 70s and then slowly coming back ever since into immense wealth, right? So, I was just walking by the park one day in the winter when everything was it had snowed and everything was white, and I just sort of looked across the beautiful white snowy park and saw the Christador looming over it, and I was just like, "Oh, why don't I set it there?" You know, it just kind like, of set it, to in, you. set it in a building that has res- that has real resonance, yeah. you know, and and the storming of the building by like these ragtag neighborhood activists that is in the opening pages of the book happened. In 1988, it was an anti-yuppie, anti-gentrification uprising. Right, and they got as far as the lobby, and they trashed the lobby. Yeah, so it was really fun. I mean, a lot of that book was a lot of the fun of that book was like grafting invented characters onto like very, very specific real life events.
0: Right, it's like the Christopher has seen a lot of shit. That building's seen a lot of shit, a lot of changes, a lot of ups and downs. There are two themes or worlds that you write about so vividly, and I was like, oh, he's really done his homework here or has experience, and that's AIDS activism and addiction and recovery. Like, you take us deep into those worlds. Was there a lot of research involved in terms of the AIDS activism stuff? Were you going back and looking at
1: minutes for meetings? Well, I've been, like, an HIV-AIDS reporter since, like, the mid-'90s. Right. So that's always been your beat. Yeah. So I knew that timeline really well. Right. I mean, did I do a little research just to make sure I was right about something? Like, there was and, an
0: event where Elizabeth Taylor shows up and everyone's excited. And, like, I was like, I bet that's I real. that.
1: Well, she, she was at that conference.
0: Right. Like, I bet she was but, there. I bet it's it's plausible yeah. that that but happened there. But the
1: particular scene I wrote where she speaks to a small group I, I made up. And it yes. was really, really fun. Amazing. I watched a lot of the videos of her at that time. And she does seem very... Um, kind of woozy like she's on a lot of medication or something <laughs> interesting so that, was, that was really fun trying to capture that no and then in terms of addiction and recovery i mean i have been very open about the fact that like i have my own long history with that well, um
0: hector one of the characters he's a uh, really at the forefront of aids activism in the beginning and then he ends up really struggling with trauma and loss and addiction and oh gosh i felt for hector and There's a, he ends up in Los Angeles and he goes to this church. And can I tell you, Tim, I just was a mess listening to that whole passage. I might've been in public. I was just sobbing and I want to go visit that church now and just look at it. Cause I, I'm probably driven by it. I don't know. It's a modern church, right? In Los Angeles.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's the church of the angels or I, I mean, you're right. It is a real church. And when I wrote that chapter, that was very funny. I mean, it's very funny writing in the Google age. Well,
0: it's so funny because you go like, "Oh, that age Act." That was really fun to write. Like these, are, when I, it's like ripping my heart out. So it's like, that was a delight. That was a blast. I like, oh, like the theme. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm glad you're I having like fun. fun
1: is, I don't know if fun is the right word, <laughs> but maybe um, you know, you feel like you're you're writing on different layers at the right. same time. Right. It feels
0: it feels meaningful and rich and you're touched by something. Yeah.
1: But it, it's funny though because in the Google age, you can you can basically like walk a neighborhood online. Oh, wow. And, you know, I, at that time I had actually spent much less time in LA than I have since. So a lot of writing, you know, a lot of it was like researching and sort of looking at the map Yeah, and what I knew about LA and looking at the map and being like, okay, this cataclysmic, this, this, you know, this really kind of like cataclysmic scene, like where does it happen in LA and then where does he go from there? Like, how does he get from A to B to C and where would he land? And, you know, so yeah. it was, um, and I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. It's a really dark and like. It's a redemptive
0: moment. It's a moment of grace and like breaking down and it's very powerful, but I wanted yeah. to drive by that church and think about it. Cause I was really struck by it. I understood reading your book more than I ever had about, the appeal of addiction or certain kinds of drugs, how they feel, what they take away. Like, I I, I got it more than I have. I'm not um, familiar with that world. It's not part of my story. But I understood it more in a very vivid, visceral way, like, oh, that appeal, why somebody, the characters that struggle, why they do. Um, if there's a theme from Christadora that I took away, and maybe this is what you intended or not, it's that the price you pay when you don't pe- tell the people in your life, the truth about things. You know, there's a few people that hold on to things because they don't want to upset something or they they, they don't have the courage or maybe it doesn't feel like they can. But it, there are things that people could have said along the way. It might not have been, it might've been ugly for a while, but the way they compounded, uh, that's something that I think about when I think about that book. Is that something yeah. that you were interested in exploring?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, some of those things, are choices on the writer's part are like plot, plot uh furthering devices sure right um otherwise we would so, wrap it
0: up in like you know 1987 or whatever but yeah
1: yeah like they're plot furthering devices um and i think some people have pointed out about uh, you know uh, people have said about that book like why didn't so-and-so just tell so-and-so about so-and-so when you know and all this could have been avoided and It's true. I mean, I think you have to, you know, their plot devices, but they have to be plausible as well. Well, you believe
0: them and you relate to them. Like, it's sort of like, oh, you know, the price. I think of Millie and I think of Mateo in this. Like, they both had things they could have said that might have made their journeys easier, but they couldn't do it. And you understand why they can't. There's a character named Drew in your book who's uh, a writer, a female, and she moves to L.A. And she gets a little woo-woo. She gets a little gratitude-y. And I love all that stuff. And I really feel like it helps life, and I feel like she's doing okay. I feel like the woo woo is serving her. Any thoughts
1: well, she was a she was i really loved writing her because um she's a mess and a drag on people around her at the beginning of the book, and she over the course of the book gets the opportunity to redeem herself in some very substantial ways um so you know, I liked writing her, you know, that book was, um, I just don't know. I, I really took my time with that book. Really. It let myself, like it. Yeah. As opposed to any sense of like, I want to crank, I want to get this done in six months, like with speech team or something like that. That was, I was returning to writing after a decade and I really took my time with it. And I think that just like everything, all the ideas in that book, like were percolating with me for a very long time. And I think it's sort of like an unusually rich, uh, you know, thing that I wrote. I mean, I don't know if I actually don't know if I could ever quite hit that depth of feeling in that book again, you know, because that it's composed of a lot of things that I was just sitting on for a really long time, you know?
0: And I remember it got it got a lot of acclaim when it came out. Was it an exciting time? Because you, it has this sort of really large scope, and uh, you've got Andy Cohen talking about it. What was that time like when it no, came out?
1: It's not, I mean, no, I mean the honest thing is like it 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 wasn't, and and it still isn't, and nor have any of my books been like.
0: This is the one that's going to change my life.
1: Well, in, you mean in material terms, yeah. in terms of pure volume of sales and like the money that no, none of, none of them have. I mean, that's really rare for a writer.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's rare and special to be published in the first place. And it's even more rare to like have a bestseller.
0: Yeah. I, that's one of the reasons I do this podcast is one of the biggest themes of it. Like what it means to be a creative person, the ups and downs of it. How do you keep going? And you alluded earlier, like to this journey that you're just like, I'm fucking going to be a writer. I'm doing this. Um, what, where are you at with it now? How do you, how do you think about it? How it fits into your life? And your identity? Well, just
1: that, I mean, just that it is my life. I mean, I guess I've been lucky that I've all been able to make my living as a writer, as a journalist. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know what it would be like if, you know, my bread and butter job was like, say a teacher, like I had to go to a public school every day. I mean, I might be so exhausted and wrung out from that that like, I didn't have the time to write, you know, and as it is whether I'm doing bread and butter writing or creative writing, it's all just sitting at home with the laptop, you know? So I think I've kind of learned to like juggle and like toggle between the two. Right. But I just, I do feel that way. I mean, I just feel lucky to have been able to like make a decent, not a, an insane living, but like a decent living, like doing what I love and, um, and just hope to keep doing it. Like I really, really love, writing novels. I really do. Like I'm happy when I'm doing it and I'm always happy to finish something. But, you know, right now, for example, like I'm at about the one, I just started writing some short fiction because I haven't written any fiction in a year since I finished the last manuscript. And I just, you know, I just get very like antsy and unhappy for lack of a better word, you know, like I'm just happier when I'm doing it. I I equate it to like, you know, working out or you know, baking sourdough bread or knitting for like other people, you know, it's just, I just find it really comforting and gratifying.
0: You like to be in the writing moment because sometimes I like having written, but I don't necessarily love, sometimes it feels like laying bricks or shingling a roof. Like sure, Yeah. Um, do you cry when you write ever?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've cried like at the end, like at writing the end of a first draft and it's partly just out of like, I can't believe I did it, you know? But I mean, it's also occasionally been like the very end of correspondence. Like Which I, I now, just, I
0: have to go back and read. I haven't read that one. Yeah, I hope
1: you do. I, I no, love I'm it. in.
0: I, I as I was reading your book, I'm like, I hope he's able to keep doing this because that's a big theme that comes up on this podcast. There's people that really have a gift. That some, it's not always easy in the business part of it, and that's life, and we accept it. But it's the kind of thing where. If somebody's a great singer, but they never really make it and you hear them singing, you're like, I would never tell that person you can't pursue this. You have something to offer. So you need to be able to do it. I don't know if i making any sense.
1: No, you definitely are. I mean, I always say to people, um, like, I mean, this is sort of a cliche, but I think like with writing, it's like your own mind and heart will let you know if – You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I really want to be a writer. I've always wanted to write a book. But I wouldn't say that they're necessarily not doing it. It's like dragging them down every day, you know, like your own mind and heart will tell you if like you really have to. And then if you really have to for your own personal satisfaction, that really kind of deprioritizes the outcome. You know, I mean, you get published if you're successful. Great. But ultimately you're doing it because you you have to, you know, not because you're banking that you're going to have a hit.
0: Yeah. Um, The characters in Chris a lot of them are artists. Was that important for you to write about people that are trying to do kind of like what you and I are doing and creative people as opposed to it's a family of bankers? Was it important?
1: Was that resonant? I I mean, I think that book is so – it's so based on – having lived in New York for 30 years and like, but uh, you know, all the characters are blends of like people I know. Yeah. And most of my friends are writers and artists of some kind. And, you know, and even though the the main couple in the book, they're kind of affluent, um, you know, they're all, they're kind of already privileged. Like a lot of these people in my life, including myself, you know, are working, are writers and artists that aren't independently wealthy and haven't gotten wealthy from their work, but you just find a way to make a living and make it work. So you can keep on doing what you want, whether it's like you're constantly applying for grants or applying to go to, uh, you know, residencies or like a writer's colony or, you know, stuff like that. So you don't actually, you can take three, you can take six weeks off from working, working yeah, and just your creative work, you know? So I kind of wanted to capture that in the book. I mean, yeah, they do. They sort of have like a safety net, a familial safety net, but they're both, but they're both teachers, you know, like they both teach art in like the public schools. They're kind of like, you know, to me, they're kind of like real working artists. Right. New York.
0: And this is a conversation I have a lot with a lot of friends of mine who are musicians, writers, filmmakers, whatever. It's like, is it always going to be this hard? And the answer is yes. And are we going to keep doing it? I guess the answer is yes. Like it always, I think when you're starting out, you think it might get easier at some point and it doesn't really. That, I mean, that, I way, that war. I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah,
1: I just say to people like if you stop and and you're unhappy, then you should just you have to find a way to keep doing it. I mean, and I know that can be hard with, you know, the yeah. obligation of life and stuff. But if you if you're truly unhappy that because you're not doing it, then you have to find some space for it in your life. Yeah. And if it doesn't bother you that much, then more power to you. Yeah, it's okay.
0: There's no, you know, let it go. It's all right. It's fine.
1: Right
0: yeah. Um, I want to say that I felt like Chris Adora was a miniseries and Speech Team is a movie. Like they're compa- it would be a <laughs> compact little movie. And then I thought, wouldn't it be fun to get the Brat Pack together to play Speech Team? <laughs> and cuz there's a brat pack kind of allusion to the to the art and there's a couple yeah, of illustrations
1: too, they're too old now though i mean the brat packers are all they're like
0: also they're too old and there's not a black one there's not a gay one like what are we going to get andrew mccarthy he's too old and he's not gay like it just it was like i like this idea but they were all white right the black uh, and they were all straight like so but um i would love to see a movie of speech team i think the be cover
1: amazing. the cover of the book which I think was so beautifully done by this artist named Nada Hayek, um, was my idea. And I asked her to riff on the poster for The Breakfast Club. Love it. If you look at it, they're kind of in the sitting scene. in blob. Yeah. Similar to, but I love that Jennifer is is basically where the Molly Ringwall character is. In Same that.
0: kind of body language. Amazing. Headband. Just great. Great, great, great. So we're going to wrap it up. Where can people find these books? They're everywhere, right? Anything else? Oh, uh, your your Substack. Talk to me about your Substack.
1: Right. Well, I'll just say the books, the ones we've been talking about are Christadora. Yes. Correspondence and the newest one is Speech Team and you know, you can find it on Amazon yeah. or you can if you want to be more supportive of the independent bookselling world. You can buy it on bookshop.org. Yeah. I and I hopefully
0: I listened to Speech Team and Crisodora on audio, and the, they're both great. But the Crisodora, they have all these different voices, Yeah, and they did a great job amazing.
1: Job. Like, yeah.
0: such good performers.
1: They did a great job with it. I should say the audio for Correspondence and for – I love the guy who did – I picked the guy who did Speech Team. Oh, he
0: did a great job. I just – it was fun to hear different voices uh, I know. in, in I relation know. to the characters. Both yeah.
1: Correspondence has two, has two readers as well, reflecting, like, the two main characters – um, but yeah, I also do, um, you know, on Substack, this new ish platform. Yeah. Writers, I do this platform called the Kaftan Chronicles, and it's a uh, once a month I do like a very long interview with a gay man who is almost always like about 60 or older. Not always. Sometimes they're as young as me, like, you know, early 50s. Right. But, Um, for the most part, they're 60 or over. And it's like, as we were talking about earlier, like it's about capturing, you know, these bits of, these bits of gay pop culture history that are kind of fading away. For example, like international mail, the catalog, of course, that was so fun to talk to the guy, the gay guy who was the creative director of international mail in the eighties.
0: Right. Um,
1: And I think it's also about, I love talking to other gay men about, um, like kind of our, especially older ones, like Gen X and up about our lives and like our inner lives, you know? And, you know, we had a different coming of age experience than queers who are 20, 25, 30, very different. Like, I'm very fascinated by aspects of like our era that they that are really beloved to them, like the golden girls, you know, like that's fascinating to me. I mean, in a way, how can you not love the golden girls? It's like some of the bitchiest, funniest writing ever, you know, but I do, I'm, I, it's always interesting to see like what stuff from our era, like Madonna and Mariah Carey, you know, for example, has carried over and like what stuff falls away.
0: Right. Have they seen Xanadu? I don't know. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they don't care.
1: Yeah. yeah. They have. well Dennis, this was amazing. This was
0: amazing. I have one final question for you. What's your what's the most vivid memory you have of being on speech team?
1: Uh it's probably when I went to like the Nationals, like with that smart girl that I told you about on the yeah. tennis court. She and I went to Nationals and it was like I mean, it was almost like my first time on a plane. Like I was like 15 and the Nationals were like in Dallas or Houston or something. And it was just so exotic to me to be with, like, these – it was the first time ever I was with these kids from, like, all around the country. And there was a dance, I remember, at this thing. And I remember – I don't know if you know, like, the Phil Collins song, like, Susudio. Oh, yeah. There's a girl met, that's been on my mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I met this girl. Like, we just became really close on that brief trip we became like buddies and I just remember being at this dance with her and like, you know, and just loving, I mean, it's Phil Collins kind of cheesy, but I kind of love that song. It's so Cynthia and pop. You yeah, know? for sure. Dancing with her. And I don't know, I think just the, it was just very exotic to be that far. I mean, that was really far away from home for me at the time. I had barely been on a plane, you know? Yeah.
0: And you were there because of your excellence, because of your thing. You know what I mean? It wasn't like something your parents pushed you into or anything like that. You did it.
1: It was fun. Yeah. I love speaking. We have to support that for the kids. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dennis. This is really fun.
0: I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I your, your work really moved me. And, uh, you know, when you, if you have those days where you're like, Oh, nobody cares, I can't do anything, like, know that there's somebody that's like, you know, waiting for the next thing.
1: Um, thank you. That means a lot. All right, really all right, all
0: take right. Care. Take care. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Tim Murphy. Check out his book, Speech Team, Christadora and Correspondence. I love his writing. He also has a substack called The Caftan Chronicles, which is right up my alley. So check that out as well. All right, so this happened. Um, It is early January still. This may come out a bit later, but my friend Tom Goss and I had our annual Dream Board making party. It's our third year in a row. Tom Goss is a singer songwriter. He's been on the podcast, and, and we're friends. He has a great studio space. Uh, down in Inglewood and we invited folks. I got some poster board and some glue and some scissors and some magazines and we did this thing and I've been into doing these for a while. I've talked about it a lot on my podcast and it's a little woo woo, right? But I, I get very practical. Sometimes I put very easy things on there. Um, I find it is something that makes me feel excited about my life and I think that is not nothing. I think that's a cool thing. Um, and I was touched by the people that came and what they shared. And uh, when people finish or at a certain point they want to share, they will they may do a little presentation and say, hey, I want to go to Barcelona. And this is – one guy was like, I want to go to Mazatlan for the eclipse. And I'm like, what eclipse? And so I learned about – there's an eclipse. And I don't know. I just found the whole exercise really life-affirming and a great way to start out the year. Uh, I, a couple of my friends, Felix and Robert, did – Uh, didn't cut out stuff from magazines. They drew all their stuff. And they're both really, like, gifted artists. I'm like, wow, you can draw these things? They were crushing it. So that was cool. And I was trying to think about why it's meaningful to me. I put them over my toilet, I kind of take a lot of time and cut out a lot of pictures and I save stuff throughout the year. I think it makes me feel excited about my life and I put some easy stuff on there like I put Mean Girls, the movie musical, I'm going to go see that in a theater. It opens like in a week. I think I can do that. I think it's going to happen. The other image I put on there is Nicole Kidman in the AMC commercial, specifically when she's walking down the hall with the numbers behind her and she gets this little twinkle in her eye like, what's next? I'm so, I don't know what's next, but it's going to be good. That's how I feel like I want to enter the year. Also, I want to go to the theater where that was shot, which I've been told is Porter Ranch, which is not far from where I live. Maybe, you know, 45 minutes. Worth a schlep. Um, I, maybe I go there and see Mean Girls the musical Killed Two Dreams right out of the gate in early January. That might happen. Um, but I was thinking about it in relation to my trip to Mexico earlier this year. I remember being at the Frida Kahlo Museum, and it had been on my dream board for years, multiple years, same with Mexico City. And like I would – what I would do is I would just Google Mexico City and see what images came up and there would be like this gorgeous building. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was a government building or a, a church or whatever, but I would I would pick the most spectacular kind of postcard image and put on there. And so when I'm there, I'm like, oh, this is the Palace of the Arts and they do all this cool stuff there and look, there's a gay couple – standing in front of it being photographed. And I think it means so much more because I had envisioned it. And same with the Frida Kahlo Museum. I wasn't in there going, wow, it's not very big. Or I wasn't judging its its attributes. I was just like, I'm here. I did it. It just made me feel really good. I think there's a power to that. Um, And the other thing I think is amazing about... My experience with these things is, if you think about it at, a, at an event like this where there's no stakes, it's just fun. It's arts and crafts, whatever. There's no, there's no stakes really. It's just you know spitballing. There are no bad ideas in a brainstorm, as they say. So you do that, and then if an opportunity comes up, you don't hem, hem and haw about it because you've already sort of thought about it. Like for example, when I first started doing these, I was I remember I was unemployed one year. I wasn't. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, and I was feeling a bit lost, and I put London on my dream board, a picture of London. I hadn't been in a long time, but I like that picture, and it might be cool to go there. And, um, you know, come August, I got a job, and uh, it was on Fashion Police, and at the end of the year, found out we were going to get renewed. So we, I had a job to come back to, and I had two, two weeks off. I'm like, I'm going to fucking go to London. And I didn't hem and haw. I didn't look at a bunch of stuff, and maybe I should go. No, I was like, boom. I decided – I wanted it. I did it. It's done. And so there's an efficiency around things like that. It's like um, – and the, uh, the, the, the jukebox, getting my jukebox fix came out of the dream board thing because I had put on my dream board I think in 2000 that I wanted to go to the last bookstore in Los Angeles, which I would never been to. But I would heard it was really cool. And I'd seen pictures of it. And I'm like, let's go to this place. So on the last day of 2021, actually a year later, they have no expiration date. You can just do whatever. Um, I got my friends, Glenn and Danny. I was like, let's go to the last bookstore. And they were like, yeah, okay, I'll go with you. And I'm like, I just want to make a dream come true before the end of the year. So we go there. And that's where I saw all the 45s. And I thought, I got to try to get this jukebox fixed. And I Googled. And next thing you know, I have a working jukebox that's brought a lot of joy into my life. Would not have happened without the dream board. Probably not. Probably not. It's that simple. Alright, so if you're thinking about doing something like that, I think it's cool. I enjoy it. Also, I like cutting out pretty pictures and being artsy-craftsy, and there's a lot of hot guys, and it's like, are those fitness goals? I'm like, I guess. I just know I I like looking at them, so (laughs) there's that. Alright, thank you so much for listening. Oh, and I have a motto for this year. This is my motto. You can incorporate it in your life as you wish. It's very simple. Do shit. That's it. Although, when I first told a friend of mine that, and he was like, do you mean do shit like d-o-u-c-h and i was like you know what i think i do i think i mean both do shit and do shit so there's that all right thanks for listening i want to get a plug-in for the mismatch game coming up february 10th at the renberg theater back here in la it's gonna be amazing we've got willem back hasn't done it in a long time drew Drogi. who else daniel gaither is doing it we've got Lori tatooine's gonna do fran drescher who she's never done before uh chris pudlow is back as Wee herman first time since Wee passed that we're gonna have him in the mix and danny casillas is reba ariba so it's gonna be fun and the center told me that they're doing some special event around it with donors or something the point is it might sell out so if you're interested in going don't lollygag get those tickets put it on your dream board buy a ticket and come see us all right this was a long one but thank you so much for listening i love talking to tim and i think you would like his books if you wanted to check them out um I want to give a shout out to Oscar Rosario for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Do shit.